0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to WTS 182. My name is Danny Murray. My name is Graham Merrigan. All right. How are Hello. you? I'm tremendous, my friend. How are you? The FEI are gone. Well,
1: I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an option. It's a bit cloudy, we're, we're a lot further than we were last I, week. I think
0: the. The angry mob has put away their tiki torches and I think they're, they're now in a a state of perpetual waiting to see what comes out in the reports.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So yeah, interesting times you live in, Mero. interesting times. And, uh, It'll be even more interesting if 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 the if the board of the FAI does indeed depart as it looks as though they've they've all offered to resign and John Delaney is saying he'll step aside pending the results of the investigation and whatnot. But I think I, I think all the signs are pointing to there will have very to gone. be an an emergency general meeting and then from there a new board. So yeah, we'll be we'll be living in a very different Irish football and world in the next
1: eight weeks potentially.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Interesting times indeed. Uh, any
1: crack with well, you, episodes. I know, I was just going to jump in there. Sorry. Um, any, crack, any crack with me? Um, no, not since we last talked. I mean, we recorded on Saturday. It's now Wednesday, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't. People probably think we have this great friendship where, you know what I mean, we've so much in common and we've so much to talk to. We, we've been over this a million times, though, lads. Graham is a Republican. I am a West Brite. He is a lout. I am an upstanding member of society. I'm the voice of reason and he's just a blaggard. So, I mean, we only do this podcast for our adorning fans, mostly my adorning fans. And, you know, it, it keeps Graham busy on the weeknights.
1: That's it. Absolutely. And I'm the face that runs the place.
0: Yeah, well, you know, that's all right. I'm okay with being, <laughs> the, I'm, I'm all right with being the voice of the people's choice, Graham.
1: Um, <laughs> Danny. Graham. Do you like the Australian comedian Chris Lilly? I do, yeah.
0: I I haven't seen enough of. Or I haven't seen as much of them as I would like. But uh, Kenny, the Kenny Nick is not a
1: thing. Ke- no, Kenny's not Chris Lilly, but Kenny is absolutely sensational. <laughs> Kenny is hilarious. Which one's Chris Lilly? <laughs> Chris Lilly has uh, Jonah. Oh, I nah. miss you, fuck, dickhead. No, I don't know this one. Sorry. Uh, no, no, I was thinking of Kenny. Awesome. He's got shows. Kenny is sensational. What? A, I love that you brought that up. Um, he has a show called "When We Were Heroes." Summer Heights High. Um, Angry Boys and it's all Australian characters. Um and he's really he touches close to home and a, a lot of them and he gets a lot of complaints in, in Australia about it and whatever. But he every his fans, his adoring fans like me and Carl Mero have been waiting for something for years for him. He hasn't done that, I don't think, since Angry Boys. Um and he signed an exclusive deal to Netflix. And this week his new show starts called Lunatics. And it's five or six brand new characters. And it's going to be deadly because the trailer looks hilarious.
0: Yeah, no, it's at, at this time of year, as we record this, Graham, we are less than 30 days away from the 2019 edition of Eurovision. Um, so at the moment, the only things I have time for in terms of entertainment value are Game of Thrones and forensically studying the entries to this year's Eurovision. Um, at the moment, I'm on Melodyfest, which is how Sweden select their songs. So over the next four weeks, that's what I'll be paying attention
1: to. Thank you. Oh, it's in Israel, so I don't, I don't care. We'll have to have a talk about this separately, right? Yeah. Who? What are we doing for this week? Who's our guest? Uh,
0: sorry, sorry. Before we do, right, Game of Thrones back. I know you don't watch Game of Thrones, so whatever, right? But however, after Game of Thrones this week, there was a trailer... For it's a two-part mini series or docu series or docudrama or whatever you want to call it, that HBO have done. Um, about, Chernobyl. About Chernobyl.
1: Yeah, I've seen the trailer. It looks crazy. Oh
0: my god! Like I, I, I read a thing about Chernobyl and watched a documentary about it and all this, and it. it besides it just being horrific in general, this this HBO production looks just mad. Yes, like it actually looks.
1: It looks very good, and, if, if and it's very good—the best, a good way to describe it. Like it looks like topic. it's going.
0: To, it looks like it's going to be very true to yeah. the actual events. Um, Barry
1: Keown's in an Irish actor, Barry Keane,
0: which is a nice segue, Graham, because Barry Keane was also in what movie? Dunkirk. Which unbelievable segue towards our guest this week, who is? an absolute gent. We've just got off Skype with him and uh, really, really enjoyed it. It went from the sublime and brilliant to the ridiculous and silly and random that we always love to have on the podcast. And he just melted into the conversation beautifully. Um, He is an author, a historian, a broadcaster. He was the official historian on uh, the Christopher Nolan uh, award-winning movie, Dunkirk, starring Barry Kogan. And... um, (laughs) He, uh, he he's he's penned i, I think he's but from talking to him there and I, I i did have his website open earlier i think he's penned about eight or nine books at this stage a lot central on world war Two, and um, the one that caught my attention was around operation fortitude which we we talked to him about and then he also um done a lot of work sure. on a book for northern ireland yeah um And he he talks to us about that as well. And that book is called Beauty and Atrocity. And uh, you can get it on Amazon and you can get it online. You can get it on bookshops and all that. And it's by Joshua Levine. And I would thoroughly recommend checking it out. And and, and just Google Josh in general because uh, fascinating bloke with uh, just fascinating insights into some incredible historical moments. That's enough waffling for me. Let's jump straight to it. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Levine. I'm delighted to say uh, we're joined this week on WTS 182 by a historian, broadcaster, and a man who has penned many a book, Josh Levine. Josh, thank you so much for being our guest this week.
2: Thank you for having me. It's really, it's exciting to be on, and, you know, and different to be on. This is not the kind of show I normally do, so I'm I am genuinely excited. A little nervous, I'll be honest, <laughs>
0: We'll we'll go easy on you. We'll go easy on
2: you. be nervous about Josh. What what type of show do you usually go on? It shows where you have to talk very seriously and you have to make you know, you you, you, you make comparisons between things that happened in history and what's going on today. you, know, you just you just can't put a foot wrong. Whereas I get the feeling on this, you know, if I put a couple of feet wrong, it won't be such a terrible thing on this show. So <laughs> no,
0: to, no, to 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 be honest with you, sometimes living in the grey area is the best place to be. Oh, uh, it's the best
2: place to be. And
0: um, yeah, we're we're not like we're like yeah, we're we're not exactly the most intellectual fellas you'll ever meet. So if you do say <laughs> so, if you do say something wrong, to be honest, we won't notice.
2: So <laughs> yeah, but then then you get the emails in. And and, uh, oh, my God, I've had I've had issues with those in the past with people, people who, you know, you put an article in the paper and you say that somebody is looping the loop and somebody writes in to say, no, it's a barrel roll. And you just think, my God, who who notices these things? Who cares about these things? It is amazing. There will be letters.
0: You know, I I genuinely think you're giving our audience far too much credit by that, and oh, yeah. they won't
2: I'll
0: mind They won't win me saying that.
2: I'll drop a couple of deliberate errors in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, prize to the person who gets
0: who gets who gets it gets it. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, look, we'll kick off by kind of. I was saying to you before we hit record that myself and Graham are kind of two excitable children, and um. I, I I tend to go down these rabbit holes where a certain topic catches my attention. And from that point on, for a couple of weeks, I'm just watching documentaries and reading books and mm-hmm. watching YouTube stuff and all that. And a while ago, a, a good, good long while ago now, I went down this rabbit hole about spies and espionage. Oh. And and I thought about all these kind of amazing kind of, you know, behind enemy lines and all this mad secrecy and I started reading about, you know, touring and the Enigma machine. And then I read about balloons and how basically big joint inflatables played a massive part in defeating the Germans. And I was like, why aren't they teaching kids about this? If if they had told me in school that balloons were responsible for beating Hitler, I'd have been a way better student.
2: The thing is, I mean, you know, the Second World War didn't actually last that long. But, my God, it took place over such a wide area, and so many people were involved in so many ways that we still are finding out about it. I mean, it's sort of amazing that, mm. I mean, you know, it fascinated me yesterday to, you know, Wayne Hennessy, the, the Crystal Palace goalkeeper. Oh, yeah. Didn't know anything about the Nazis. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, he knew how to do a Hitler salute, but he didn't know anything about the Nazis. And, and there is, you know, there is so much that we still... Are discovering about this period and about just the scope of this war, and yeah, and this is this is one of those things that, that you know there were people fighting this war who weren't you know never carried a gun but took part in a completely different kind of a war, uh, and and you know the, this is why I wrote a book about Operation Fortitude, the deception um, before D-Day effectively and my god it's you know extraordinary stories that you you know if if i hadn't found the files on it you you really wouldn't believe it and and uh so part of it was the physical deception you know the fact that they had inflatable tanks and uh you know they they created all this stuff in the hope that the germans were watching to make it look as if there was this big army in southeast england but actually as it turned out you know for the most part, the Germans weren't watching because they didn't have any spies. They didn't realize they thought they had spies. They didn't have any spies in Britain. And they didn't really have the have the capacity to, to, to fly any reconnaissance missions or many over Britain. So it was in the end the double agents, who the, the, the spies that the Germans thought were real but were really working for the Allies, who were the ones who were effective in passing over the misinformation to the Germans. And that in itself, I mean, you know, once I started to uncover that story, it's just brilliant. It's something that people know nothing about. And it's so odd. And you're, you, you, you have just the weirdest people involved in it. Because, you know, who wants to be, what sort of person wants to become a double agent? You've got to be pretty weird. Well, either you have to be, a German spy who's captured and is given the choice of being executed or being a double agent—that's—I understand that. But then you get these loonies who volunteer to do it because of some sort of, you know, psychological quirk of their own makeup that they want to be working for both sides at the same time. And you just end—I mean—you end up with these fascinating weirdos, basically. And so, what, you, you, what's the pay? What's the pay like for the double agents? <laughs> well, I'll I'll send you the rates, and then you can consider it. it it's um, <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, it was, funny enough, the pay I think probably was quite good because they were you know effectively, you know, getting money from both sides. But the trouble was when the Germans paid them, the British tended to just to take that money for themselves. They didn't give it to them as spending money. But then you know, I found these fantastic photos of one German spy who was being paid this was before Japan entered the war, who was getting his money. His money was delivered to him. By the Japanese naval attaché in London, and there's this weird photo. This was, I suppose, late 1940, early 1941, of them looking. That you've never seen two people looking more suspicious. They're, they're standing on a street in Mayfair in 1940, a Japanese man, uh, and a, and a spy, and they're sort of looking around them, really, really sort of surreptitiously, covertly, and it's it's a picture taken by by MI5, and. They look so suspicious. Well, there weren't many Japanese people on the streets of, you know, London in 1940. Yeah, yeah. And when one is, you know, handing money over to a strange man, it, you know, it, it catches the attention. And so, you know, th- that, that was one way they got money by, you know, allies you know, handing, over, handing over packets of cash. And there was, one, there was one German spy who the British didn't catch. And the, the, the Germans kept promising to give him money. They never gave him money. He couldn't get a job. Because he couldn't register with the authorities as a, as a British authorities as an enemy alien, and in the end, he just went to um, he, he just went to a, a, an air aid um, shelter in Cambridge and shot his own brains out because he had no way of getting any money, and hey, it, so and and um, this was a, an air aid shelter was about to open. This guy had absolutely no money. He couldn't do any work. You know, he couldn't get a job, and, and so he just killed himself. Um, and he was—he um, had an, also the extraordinary name of Engelbertus Facken. Um I—I I, I think I'm allowed to swear because that's not swearing; that's his name. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, one—it's—it's it's definitely the best name I've heard in a long time. And and two, yeah, you're—you're you're free to say whatever you want to be honest. Um,
2: and um, but, I mean, it's like, isn't it a great name? I mean, you know, if you want to be sued, then feel free to walk around. <laughs> Hello, my, my name's is Engelbertus Facken. <laughs>
0: you <laughs> it will it's, definitely raise a few eyebrows in the area of Ireland i'm living in i can tell you that much they don't hear much beyond paddy and seamus in these parts
2: well even so. engelbert i mean that's a pretty good name first name well
0: that's yeah, yeah. i mean uh, well engelbert humperdinck definitely still raises eyebrows you know so
2: <laughs> yes exactly exactly anyway so so you know the, you've got this real cast of of odd and, and 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 eccentrics um and so that makes it just an interesting story from a human interest perspective. And then you've got the fact that, you know, it, it worked. I mean, Operation Fortitude worked. It made the Germans think, first of all, the invasion was coming in a different place. And then once it came in Normandy, that that was only a sort of preliminary attack. And the main attack was still to come in the Pas de Calais. It was incredibly effective. And and so many interesting things came out of it, you know, just, I mean, so for example, um, um, uh, you, you, Peter Fleming, Ian Fleming's who wrote yeah. Bond, his brother was sort of, you know, he was involved in, in British intelligence. So it was Ian Fleming. And, um, you know, I, I found a thing that he'd written. I found this in the national archives, a whole big paper that he'd written on why deception, the whole idea of strategic deception, In other words, planting information on the enemy, to make the enemy um, believe uh, that that your intentions are are, are different to what they really are, worked very well on the Germans. You know, what 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 the Allies used to do, what the British used to do, was to plant tiny little pieces of information that the Germans would put together themselves. And if they were putting it together themselves, they were much more likely to believe it than if it was all sort of planted on them wholesale. Because they would think, you know, I've I'd, I'd worked this out for myself. I'm clever. And also, if one bit of it was blown, one section of it was blown, then that wouldn't blow the whole thing. So that's effectively how they did it. But, you know, what Peter Fleming said was that, you know, this works really well on the, on the Germans. It doesn't work at all on the Japanese. You know, we can't get the Japanese to understand anything. They will not put this information together and come to what we want them to believe, and you know that in itself is quite interesting. That you, yeah. you start to see how different, you know, mentalities were working. The Germans and the British were obviously thinking alike, and the British were able to get inside of the mentality of the Germans. Couldn't do it at all with the Japanese, you know. Couldn't. That, yeah,
0: that that is that that is like that. That that's a whole psychology thing in itself that you yeah. could spend hours just I know aimlessly on wandering through and trying to figure out it. It. It's, and so, one of the things you said there, just around kind of these mad, beautiful weirdos who who decided to become these double agents, and that after the war, did any of them kind of seek seek fame or notoriety afterwards, or did oh, they just?
2: Guy, he's brilliant. I mean, one, I mean, this one guy who who was a spy who who um, parachuted into Britain. He was a proper Nazi. I mean, a really really dedicated Nazi. So he parachuted in and he basically was taken to the spy prison, which was in Richmond. Um, And he was um, interrogated, admitted that he was a spy. And they basically, you know, turned him into a double agent because they they told him you you will be, if you don't agree to, to, to become a double agent to work for us, then we'll put you on trial and you'll be executed as many were, including the last man to be shot in the tower of London, for example. Um, so, so he agreed to become a double agent, uh, and he served as a double agent, you know, throughout the war and he had a really distinctive style of, of getting in touch with the Germans. He used to say, he used to say, you know, they'd ask him questions and he'd just reply. So he'd say, no, no, go kiss my ass or, you know, go fuck yourselves. I mean, that was how he replied to the, to the Germans on a regular basis. That's how they, you know, they believed that he, he wasn't under control because he carried on speaking to them like that throughout the war. Anyway, at the end of the war, he just sort of disappeared into, into British society. And he became uh, the chief photographer with the Watford Observer and one of Britain's uh, chief experts on budgery girls. What? Yeah. What, so this, what? Was, this was what he became, you know. This, this And what I found so interesting was he came to prominence in the early 1990s. Because if you remember the poll tax, you remember Thatcher's poll yeah, tax. Yeah. Unpopular. He was a protester against the poll tax, and so he appeared in the papers. And then he was uncovered as having once been a double agent. So this all came out in the nineties. In the meantime, back in Germany, uh, he had family who had known that he was a spy and had assumed that he'd been a German spy, loyal German spy, throughout the war and it just sort of blended into society afterwards. When they discovered, bear in mind this is 1991, when they discovered he'd actually been a double agent working for the Allies, they never spoke to him again. Wow. I know, So, and, and you get little snippets of that, little life after, afterwards. What, what is life for a, a spy, a double agent yeah. afterwards? And there's somebody who, his elderly relatives simply wouldn't speak to him because they felt he'd been a traitor to the Nazi cause, as late as the nineteen nineties, and and also you know his great love with budgerigars. <laughs> yeah,
0: probably the latter that was the most offensive. Bit, in fairness,
2: I think that's probably what it did for him. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and within the, the the whole, because this was used in uh, as kind of as you were saying like a, a deception tactic or whatever to to distract away from what was actually kind of the plan around D Day and yeah. the, the real going on. And part of that then was. They essentially left Messi on the bench. They they decided the the Germans really believed that Patton was probably the greatest of all the greats that they had. So they decided Patton's on balloon watch, and he's going to be the guy that that goes after these ghost armies.
2: That's right. Well, the, you see, the, the the whole idea was and the brilliant idea, and this real maverick came along and changed the plan quite close to the end, quite close to it being put into practice, and the man, uh, called David Strangeways, and he. He said, no, no, it's not going to work the way you've you've written it. We've got to change it. And what he came up with was this idea of the fake American army, first United States army group based in southeast England. Uh, And and it was exactly that, that that Patton was supposedly, wasn't really, but supposedly was, um, you know, the, the, the head of this army. Patton hated doing this. You know, he kept talking about wasting his time and being a you know, goddamn ham and having to pretend this, having to pretend that. But it was a brilliant choice because the Germans really respected Pat because, you know, he, he was so, I don't know how to put this, such a terrible person, I think. You know, I think he was, he was really extreme. He was, you know, he, 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 he was not, a, he was not a, in any way a sort of you know, nice guy. And the Germans understood that they believed their leaders ought to be tough, ought to be hard, ought to be nasty. So they totally believed that if you know if Patton was was in charge of this group, and this group hadn't yet invaded, the invasion would still be to come. So so yeah, Patton fitted that absolutely perfectly. And but you see, there were other, you know, so so the, um for example, Montgomery they. They got yeah. an actor to play Montgomery. Do you, know, do you know this story? No, I don't know this. So Montgomery, you know, not unlike Patton, was incredibly self-important. And they came up with this idea that if they could find someone who looked and sounded just like Montgomery, and they could send him basically to, the, to Gibraltar in the Middle East 10 days before D-Day. And if they did that and the Germans could see him out there, they'd never think D-Day was coming because Montgomery was so important. You know, then if he was in the Middle East, then there was no attack coming in France. Now, Montgomery loved this because it made him out to be important. You know, he he was clearly the most important guy because if he's not there, then, you know, the attack isn't going to happen. So he, you know, was part of all this. They found uh, a junior officer who looked like Montgomery. They actually found two. The first one turned out to be the wrong height. The second one was run over. They found a third one who looked like Montgomery. They put him in Montgomery's uniform. They took him out to Gibraltar. They paraded him around where uh, a spy, sympathetic to the Germans, uh, a Spaniard, I think it was, saw him and reported him back. And this guy, who was just an ordinary bloke, was paid Montgomery's salary for the whole time he was pretending to be Montgomery. And then they made a film about it in the 1950s, and he played himself and Montgomery in the... In the film, so you know, again, you know, weirdness. There's a lot of weirdness going on around all this, and I find it just, you know, brilliant. That there's, it's just so odd. What first gave you the interest for these subjects, Josh? I think um, I I used to be a lawyer um, back in the old days. I was a criminal lawyer, and I just had an idea for a book, and I, you know, the history. Is always what's fascinated me so so much because what, you know what history is everything that's ever happened. I mean, you know, there are people I know I've got a really really clever friend who says she's not interested in history. I don't understand what that means. History is everything. Everything you ever did. Everything that's ever happened. And if you're if you're not interested in that one, well, you know, what the hell are you interested in? So I'm just so fascinated by you know on the simplest level what's happened in the past, but also. How people behave, because it's all about people. I'm always putting myself in other people's situations. How would I behave in that circumstance? One thing I'm totally fascinated in is First World War flying, not something people know much about. But, my God, you know, the, the, the casualty rates and, and the fact that you know life expectancy was something like 11 days from the time you arrived on the Western Front. Um, and, you know, to me, this is utterly fascinating, putting myself in these people's shoes, how would I have behaved? What were these people really like? Were they like us? Had You know, were they different? Um, and that to me is just, you know, what makes it all so interesting, really.
0: Yeah, I... World War I is one of them that kind of... The, the more that you look at it and the more you read about it, the more you realise just how... like. I I cannot for the life of me put myself in a mindset where you get on a boat, you head to the continent, and you know that the stats are saying kind of within a couple of days, that's it, it's game over. Like it, World War One is just insane. Like there's no other way to put it.
2: It's completely insane. And and you know people were asked to do things. They were just asked to you know attack as decoys, not not even expected to survive. And because mm. duty meant so much to people, they just did it. They didn't. Question: I don't know if you've seen that the colorized film, you know, the the, um, the Peter Jackson films that came out recently. Because if you haven't, just see it. It's just unbelievable. That's what I'm talking about. It brings these people to life. You realize they are us. There's there's a moment in that film where, first of all, it goes into color, but second of all, they slow it down. Because you know how early film footage is really quick. It's also Charlie Chaplin and yeah, it's
0: that kind of slapstick kind of
2: exactly comic. They, they take this back to, to normal speed, and suddenly they're real people. And there's, one, there's this amazing moment in it that I find so touching even to think about, where these, these two guys, they're, they're carrying big planks, basically duckboards along, and the one behind suddenly gets an idea in his head, and he starts hitting the man in front on the head with his big, long you know plank, wooden plank. And he's loving, he's laughing, and the bloke in front turns around, and he's really annoyed. And you suddenly think, yes, that's us. You know, so I mean, bored, and he's hitting the man in front on the head with a piece of wood. Yes, people are people,
0: you know. There's been many a time, I've wanted to hit Graham Erican in the head with a bit of wood. Now, many a
2: time, <laughs> feel free. See, this is an opportunity. The, the, um, <laughs> you're learning from history, but it, it, you know what I mean. I mean, it's just sort of—it was so real, and you realize, God, then no, it's yeah. all. I
0: think that, that, yeah, I think sometimes you know we're all guilty maybe looking at kind of that you know sort of stained yellowy black and white photo and it just puts such a distance not only in time but just in how you sort of look at it and how you view it it just it, it's almost impossible for it to resonate in the same way that you know now we look at you know even if you take nine eleven, like you look at video footage of that and instantly yeah. you feel more in empathy towards that than you do towards <laughs> the, these guys who are you know in the Even trenches
2: and going over the top. I when I was a kid back in the seventies, already, you know, they're faded and they're. Mm. When I got, I got a twenty-month-old daughter who's in the next room. I'm desperately trying to keep her quiet. Um, <laughs> you know, when 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 I when she sees pictures, shows her children pictures. Now they won't have changed. You know, they'll be absolutely digital and crystal clear. When she's old enough to look at pictures as me, that'll be again that what you say that distance is there because they'll be faded they'll just they'll look like they come from a different age a different era and somehow my childhood will seem very different to her childhood and actually you know we're all the same we really are yeah
0: it's um it's it's one of them as well i think that there's a What's the... Meryl? you might be able to remember. Is it Willie McBride? Is that the name of the song? And there's a line in that that I think captures that almost perfectly about kind of looking at an old photograph behind Mm -hmm. it. um, And that that kind of sums it up. It is. It's it's weird. Because even now, if I look at photos of like my parents from like, you know, if ever they... My ma has a habit of breaking out a photo album to go looking for one particular photo that's in, you know, a pile of hundreds and she's adamant she'll know the exact photo that she's looking for. And I'm like, you know, okay, ma, whatever. But... uh, even seeing some of them followers, I'm like, why am I taking the 20s? And then she hits me a clipper in the ear and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's all good, like, but.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, it? And it's funny how faces, you know, faces change and, you know, some of the, some of the faces you see in old photos just couldn't couldn't exist. And I'll tell you another thing. I was looking, in fact, earlier on today, I was trying, I was working when I got bored and I was looking at old footage of football matches, the earliest footage of football from sort of, you know, 1898, 18, you know, to 1900. Mm. And it looks terrible. I'd love to see it from a modern, take it with a modern camera. Were they all just terrible at football? Or <laughs> is it the way it, you know what I mean? Or was it the? Yeah, first? yeah,
1: yeah. I know exactly what you mean when you see the, the really twen- 20s and 30s footage of FA Cup finals or whatever. It's kind of going, what is going on there? Yeah, Pretty I mean, slow, whatever.
2: And exactly, are they, are they terrible? Oh, is it partly because the ball weighed about a tonne and a half? Or, <laughs> and you, can you imagine heading one of those things? Or, oh, and, stop, yeah. And, but then, or is it, you know, I'd love to see it filmed, you know, in 4K and just to see, actually, maybe they're fantastic. You know, maybe. The,
0: the, although it, the the idea of seeing th- those guys running it and that, because uh, in my head I'm like, yeah, in ultra 4K and high def on a big widescreen TV and all. But in my head, they're still doing that kind of Charlie Chaplin, running from the knees yeah. down kind of. <laughs> you know I mean?
2: And also sort of running in circles. And they don't seem to be even going after the ball. It's a, or it, and, and sometimes it's like, you know, it's like watching a bunch of six-year-olds playing where everyone chases after the ball at once. There doesn't seem to be yeah. any kind of idea of, you know, keep to your position. From the off, they're all after the ball. And, and um, I don't know, but that's what it looks yeah. like
0: in, it is it's the, like the, the Benny Hill music works perfectly in all of these
2: situations. <laughs> yeah. And that's why, you know, this, the, 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 um, this film, this colorized film, is, is really, I mean, I think it's revolutionary. I think it's amazing to watch because it absolutely strips all of that away. And you see, you don't see your great great grandfather being. You know, in a, in another black and white world, you you absolutely see. It's a bit like the Wizards of Oz, you know, in the Wizard of Oz, where suddenly it goes into color, and yeah. and you know, oh my God, yes, it's 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 something I can relate to. It's 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 like that, and it's incredibly moving for that reason. Um, yeah.
1: George, what led you to, um, what led you to the North of Ireland?
2: I. Uh, you know what it was because I was I, I was so interested in the subject. I growing up in England in the eighties, every single day in the papers, you know the tit for tat. Someone on this side has killed someone. This side has shot someone. on This side da 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 da, da. and no one ever explained what it was about. Why are these people hurting each other? What the f- is going on? We it was never explained, and so I what I wanted to do was basically to go out there. I was lucky enough to be commissioned to, 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 to do a book on it, to go out there, to meet everyone I possibly could, to meet people on all sides, um, you know, the ex-IRX, uh, UVF, police, army, uh, politicians, and really find out who they were and what they felt and why they behaved the way they did, how they feel now. God, it was the most interesting year and a half of my life. It really, really was. It was. Part you know, part of it was because when you meet people with just total belief, it's it's sort of you know, at once horrifying and awe-inspiring. You're sort of slightly jealous of it in a way, because these people never a lot of these people who were so nice, I mean, God, they were lovely. They, they they, you know, bought me drinks and made me meals and I'd go out and I'd laugh and I'd go into pubs with them that I would never dare go into on my own. Jesus, in the bog side, I'd go into a pub where, you know, people would 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 take my head off by looking at me ordinarily. But because I was with someone, absolutely, you know, I was fine. I was a an honoured guest. And you'd meet these fantastic people and then you'd find out what they really believed. You'd get drunk with them a lot and you'd find out what they really believed. And it was just... God, it was, it was fascinating. And sometimes you would end up, or I would end up thinking, almost jealous, thinking, God, wouldn't it be great just to have such belief that you never questioned, you never had to question anything. Because, I mean, <laughs> the whole point of what I do is questioning everything. And,
1: and these, are, th- these are members of Par-
2: Paralymetries. Yeah, some were, some were. Um, really? And some, you know, and also some, I mean, really interesting, like I was just thinking about this one guy the other day, Guy from Glasgow, who, you know, was an orange man in, in Glasgow and grew up, you know, really with this strength of belief. And I said to him, you know, you, you live in Glasgow, and then you came over to Northern Ireland to 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 join the, the UVF. What did you do here? I mean, you're not you're not from Northern Ireland. It's not and he said, No, I came to fight my war. And that's the strength of belief. And so fascinating that why is it your war? Why don't you stay in Glasgow and live and be a person from Glasgow? Why come to, and fight your war? And that, you know, th- that I, I found that quite shocking. You know, he, and he ended up being blown up. And, and uh, so he was part of the whole reconciliation process. But so many of these people who were involved in reconciliation, well, you know, they were. But at the same time, you know, you can't completely re-educate someone. They've grown up. Feeling a certain way, thinking a certain way, and you—you know that's how, at some level, they're going to think and feel until the day they die. And so you—you know, it just was so interesting being confronted with—you know—Seamus Heaney wrote poems about it. Um, Yeats wrote poems about it. You know, this sense of belief that is so strong, nothing will ever compromise it, really.
0: And in your book, Josh, you—you um it kind of takes a format of the, the various interviews you had with these people.
2: Yeah.
0: And, like, uh, I presume it's very hard when you're, when you're we're sitting there and you're having these intimate conversations. Like you said, you know, you've gone out for drinks, you've been to an esteemed guest, they've, they've fed you, they've watered you, all these kind of things. Tr- throughout it, do you kind of find yourself having to kind of check yourself because y- you almost find... You're, you're hanging on their word and almost being sympathetic to them or was a very kind of like...
2: Well, no, uh, you're absolutely sympathetic because they're human beings and you understand... You know, one of the most interesting was talking to Patrick McGee, who was the, the Brighton bomber. Um, and Patrick McGee, I, I honestly, t- I tell you, was a lovely man um, and and the most torn up, one of the most torn up inside people that I've I think I've ever met because he was... He's he's formed this friendship with the daughter of one of the people the bomb killed, and you know she seems really wants to to get to the bottom and wants him to apologize. He can't apologize. He can apologize for killing her father, but he can't apologize for planting the bomb that killed her father because his whole life was based around what he saw as a war, and he was fighting a war. And so you see this man go into sort of mental conniptions, trying to work out, you know, what his life was about, what he was fighting, how – because he's obviously a very yeah. decent man, actually, yeah. you know. Um, he said to me the most extraordinary thing. He said – he's actually probably the only – of all the people that I spoke to and interviewed, he was the only one who wouldn't speak to me afterwards. I think he felt I was – maybe. I don't know. I don't know this. He may have felt I was hard on him, but I, how could I be anything else? Um, yeah. But he, he actually said to me he looked at my screensaver I had this screensaver of photographs I've taken in art galleries of um, of, of you know pictures and famous pictures and he said to me well I'd like to have that I'd said well I took it gallery. he said well I wouldn't like to I wouldn't like to set off a, a flash in a public place the Brighton bomber said that to me oh, Jesus and I put that in the, I put that in the book because <sighs> I mean you have to I mean it, you know it's it's sort of um. And I, th- I don't think he was very pleased that I, that I put that. But, I mean, you know, th- that, we, we, were, we, we met in the Europa Hotel, which is, you know, yeah. the most, you know, bombed hotel. <laughs> I mean, I asked him if, you know, have you ever bombed this hotel? And he said, I can't answer that. So, yes, in other words. <laughs> um, but, but, the, but uh, you know, the, the whole thing was you, you, you were sort of interviewing these people who didn't want to talk about their pasts but did want to talk about their pasts. You know, they were so torn, so many of these people, they wanted to own up to it because they were genuinely, a lot of them were decent people and they felt terrible about what they'd done. But on the other hand, they couldn't talk about what they'd done. So you ended up almost being a, a confessor. You almost, you know, you almost being some sort of, um, I don't know, a psychiatrist, a priest, some, somebody who was holding the hands of these people. One XIRA ira guy who um, had discovered reflexology you know, and swore by reflexology and all these alternative treatments, you know, a way of sort of exercising his past. And why not? I mean, it, it's also, it's odd, but it's, you know, that's. Yeah. That, you know, another thing I found fascinating just about it is, is you know, the self-importance of normal. It's a tiny place, tiny, tiny place that, ha- I mean, you only have to, to meet some of these figures. I mean, I met Paisley. And I met Paisley once. He'd had his his sort of epiphany, you know. And I met him at a, a, a at a um, uh, St Patrick's Day breakfast where he was speaking alongside a nun. I mean, you you know, even of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God! I
2: couldn't so, make it up. And there's I a went,
0: brilliant juxtaposition in
2: there. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole routine in there, and 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 so I I ended up. Um, you know, I, I went up to him and I, I felt that I had to say something. And everyone was having an Ulster fry, except him. He was having porridge, apparently always has porridge. And I said to him, you know, I see you're, you're having the porridge. And in that voice, I really hesitate to do even attempt it. <laughs> that voice, and he spoke to me, like you know, in my face, like I was a public meeting. He said, he said, I asked for the cream, but they wouldn't give me any cream. And I just, if only I'd been recording that. I mean, I, you know, I had a blast. <laughs> That's amazing price, But he really had to go at me for the cream It wasn't my fault And <laughs> You know you, you, it, 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 I was there at a really interesting time When things were, were changing This was a few years ago People wanted to talk, people were opening up But at the same time You know, still And, and of course you know, th- This was a period where there's so many terrible things So many people were so terribly affected I met lots of children whose parents had, had been killed or, you know, things had happened to them. And they wanted answers, you know? They, they needed to... But nobody was telling them any answers because the peace process meant that we don't talk. You know, we, 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 we consciously sit on these things and we, we kind of have a generation of, of silence about these things until... You know, and, and until we don't remember them. And yet there was a whole... You know, so many people who were so damaged, they needed to have the information that nobody was talking about. So, you think um, there was a sense of uh, PTSD, would it? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the guy... I mean, so many odd little things as well. I mean, it just this, this was... See, see if you can work this out, right? I spoke to this IRA guy um, who'd gone to, to prison. He'd been part of the dirty protest in, uh, in, in the maze. And he'd, he'd been in prison for, for about... 20 years I think and he'd come out and he was picked up outside the prison by his family he hadn't had a youth I mean he'd gone in at the age of 18 so he'd never been out with girls and you know he came out at 38 and was a teenager but anyway he came out of prison he got into the car and they drove him home wherever his home was they dropped him at the bottom of the street and they all walked up the hill um to his house and he started feeling really odd quite seasick I'm really strange in his head he thought he was having some sort of breakdown, walking from the car to his house. Do you have any idea what that was? Can you guess what might have happened to him for the first time in 20 years? He was walking on a slope. He hadn't walked on a slope for 20 years. And wow. his body and his brain couldn't handle it. It's tiny little details like this when you, when you find, find them out that suddenly, oh, my God, that's the sort of human detail.
0: Yeah, that's that's and, something you would never ever kind of no. you'd never think about. But w- when you say that, I'm kind of like, holy shit! that was he is-
2: hey, he Know what it was? He 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 just thought he thought he was having some sort of breakdown. He thought, and you know when you know what can you say when someone tells you that story? You know that's that's a human story. You, you know if you're orange, if you're green, if you're blue, if you're pink, walking on a slope for the first time in twenty years is gonna is gonna screw you over. So.
0: Anyway, uh, you know, yeah, that that is that's yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I yeah, if I was if I was on the kind of the, the end of the thing that you were on and, and somebody said that to me, I, I, I probably would have just pressed stop on the recorder so I could take a little while to digest that myself because
2: yeah,
0: it's it, you, it, you never even think of something that no. small, that minute, and yet then you suddenly think, hang on, 20 years and this guy. Uh, yeah, it, it puts it really into perspective in terms of what they've experienced and and what they've lived through for their part in the, the troubles. Like it's insane. Like,
2: and P- you talk about PTSD. Yes, absolutely. I mean, PT well, I think we're starting to realise now that PTSD is is so prevalent in so many different areas. So yes, absolutely. I think the guy who got very into reflexology. I mean, he was very clearly very very badly damaged, and you see it. I mean, I, you know, I, I was working on the Dunkirk film, and I wrote. Of the book of the film, and I got to know a lot of Dunkirk veterans, a lot of whom have died recently. Um, and you know, this one guy, you know, the sweetest, sweetest man you've, you've ever met, who's now he's still still going 99. You know, he's had consistent nightmares, still has them. Um, and you know, how many, I mean, good came out of it as well, he, he had. He had shell shock, what he called shell shock, and he was put in a hospital straight after Dunkirk, where he met his wife, who was nursing him. So I mean, you know, I, I assume he, you know, he'd see that as a good thing. But amazing, so many years later, it sticks on you. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't just go away. And we went on a, we went on a, a radio chat thing together, and he was talking about it, and he was really opening up in a way that he'd never done before and a way so many of these veterans do you know when they get old when they get really old it's sort of somehow and you know again i don't really understand the reasons but people want to people didn't talk about it for years never even told their children never told their families when they get older suddenly they want to talk about it it becomes real again um you know, all the things that mattered for years, making a living, you know, bringing up your kids, uh, you know, the, your your job in the factory, suddenly not so important. Suddenly you're back there on the beach, you know, wherever, and, and, and it's real to you again.
0: You, you were the official historian for that, the, the Christopher Nolan film, Dunkirk, and right. like getting to talk to kind of these veterans and getting kind of that, that, that primary source kind of account of things and then trying to bring that back to, you know, kind of Hollywood. And how, how did that process work? Was it a difficult process or was it really, a... interesting,
2: process. really interesting because in the, at the end of the day, so, you know, it's a film, you're you not, you're never going to, you're not making a documentary. So, but having said that, Christopher Nolan was brilliant to work with and, was really genuinely interested in the real story, so so I was very lucky in that sense. Um, and but, but but also you know you, you there is a degree you know my job was to say no well, that's not right that's not right that that was my job didn't mean he had to listen to me, and sometimes you just had to pick your battles you know you had to you had to decide that certain things um, to, were clearly so integral to the plot. And to the story that he wanted to tell, that you weren't going to win, but you could absolutely win on. So, for, you know, I mean, little things like I don't know if you remember the movie, um, I'm so American now, the movie. I don't know if you remember the film, but the, um, you know, it began with these leaflets floating down. So I, I, I quite early on when we were talking, I told him about these leaflets. He thought, what a great idea, because you can visually, you can show one of these leaflets, a soldier getting hold of it. And seeing, you know, on it, it's, and, and the genuine leaflets had a map which showed the British um, and the Allies, um, you know, really hemmed in and the Germans all around them. And you, could, you don't need any clunky dialogue around that. You can just show the situation on the map, and it's a really visual shortcut to getting the film going. So, you know, things like that, you know, you've, where I felt, okay, this is really, I'm, I'm helping. I'm actually genuinely helping with this film. Yeah. And other things like, you know, making sure that the the pilots were speaking to each other in a sort of fairly genuine way and not in a sort of 1970s Smokey and the Bandit way, which they were at first. There was quite a lot of, um, you know, copy that and, and all that kind of thing. And I, t- I actually took that to to a couple of Battle of Britain veterans and said, look, what would you have said? And they looked at that and said, well, we wouldn't have said that. So, you know, we, we, um, you know, there was a lot of stuff to, 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 to do. Um, and, and I just loved it. I mean, it was absolutely... And also, it just spoiled me, because if I work on another film, if I, if I work on a low-budget film now, I mean, I'm just going to be... I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I I'm not to get out of bed. I'll say, this is not how... <laughs> S-
0: sending your notes across on WhatsApp and just be like, yeah, listen to these. Go on, okay, away we go. <laughs>
2: yeah. Exactly. You know, they'd call this a lunch... so so, um no it was it was it was really really interesting and they treated me very well and and you know it was it's it's always exciting to be part of something you know that you feel is good Mm -hmm. and it felt like we were doing something worthwhile and it you know clearly wasn't my movie it was his movie a hundred percent but just to be a you know a small part in it and to be you know to be made to feel important more important than I was was brilliant I loved it Actually loved it.
0: Yeah, I I, I can only imagine it was a, a great experience. And in, you know, I I, I presume like, I imagine it was as true as possible in terms of being on the beach. And was it called? Was that the mole? Is that what the the kind I, of pier thing was called? The,
2: the, the East Pier, which what it really was, was a breakwater. You know, it was just to stop sand silting up the harbour. It was never intended to be a, a a jetty. Yeah. But in in the real event, you know, they had to do something because the whole harbour had been destroyed, basically, by the Luftwaffe, and they uh, on, on the, uh, the night of the 28th of May, the guy in charge down there decided, we'll try getting people off this breakwater, and it worked and that's how they got the majority of people off, and so for the film, they rebuilt that, and that's incredibly moving you know, it's, he doesn't use CGI, Christopher Nolan doesn't well, I he, he has to occasionally but he doesn't like to use CGI I think that's quite well known and so you know, whenever things could be done for real, like rebuilding the mole, like getting a, a destroyer, um, you know, building a hospital ship, all these things were done for real, and it was it it, it was very moving. And just you know, to see the thing recreated was uh, was very moving. And, and and the soldiers were all played by local Dunkirk kids, and and, and um, you know, again, there was something there was something really great about that. Also, I mean, other things like. I found this account where they they British brought a, a transmitter, radio Marconi transmitter, to the beach, and it was working for a few hours, and then it broke because it got sand in it. And I read this account, and I thought, bloody hell! I mean, that that is. Ter-. I mean, I just imagined in my head, you know, a couple of sailors carrying it and dropping it in the sand and pretending nothing had happened. And then, oh, I don't know. You know, but then when we were there, and the wind got up, and it's like a sandstorm. And you realize, you know, even in summer, when the, sand, when the wind gets up, sand goes everywhere. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you, there was not an orifice that wasn't full of sand on, on that beach at times. And you realize that's what happened to this transmitter. It got clogged because, you know, the wind got up. And then suddenly from being there, you learn something about the, 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 the real thing that you wouldn't have learned otherwise. And again, that's moving. So, you know, I, don't, you wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be pretentious about it and say, oh, God, yeah, I understood what it was like for the soldiers, because, mm-hmm. you know, um, but there are little things like that where you actually do discover something that you wouldn't have known otherwise, and it all becomes a bit more real, and it all becomes a bit more affecting because of that.
0: And just, obviously, you've, you've, you've written extensively on World War II, and then you've, you've done a piece on Northern Ireland as well, and... Have you ever anything coming up, Have you anything in the, in the pipeline that, that you're working on at the moment?
2: Yeah, I'm, well, I'm doing my first screen screenplay, um, which is really, really fun. I actually, I used to, I, I've written plays and radio plays for the BBC years ago, but I haven't done it for years. So I'm really keen to get back into, in, in, into drama and, and fiction. Um, I'm doing a new book, uh, taking the story on from Dunkirk to North Africa. And the start of the special relationship, Britain and America, getting on fantastically badly at first. People don't realize the Americans had a terrible disaster when they entered the war in North Africa. They were hammered by Rommel. People don't really realize that. And, and um, so that's the next book. And also I want to do more. I've, I've done quite a few radio documentaries. And I mean, I've done television, but actually writing the radio stuff for Radio 4 is great fun because nobody – tells you what to do you can just do whatever you want so i did one on you know the most expensive stamp in the world that sold for you know nine and a half million dollars and and a slum yeah i know i know well oh, what was the stamp of it was it was um uh, 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 basically a british guiana well, one cent stamp from the 19th century very old but what's so brilliant about it the reason why it was unique there was only one in the world and so, first of all, you had you know, people in the park. People used to collect stamps. I don't know about you. I mean, I grew up collecting stamps. It was something we did. I don't think kids do it anymore because, you know, got, they've got Minecraft, which I still don't know what that is. But, but the, um, you know, but we, first of all, people collected stamps. But second of all, there were incredibly rich people who saw themselves as unique. There's only one person like me in the world. They wanted to own something that was unique. And this stamp was complete there was not- there was only one of it so it was sort of went from one very rich person to another very very rich person it became this sort of i don't know icon of wealth um and uh, it, it, it was said to have a curse attached to it and i mean clearly it didn't have a curse attached to it what it had was a bunch of completely crazy owners who you know all came to bad ends because they were so crazy um because they were so rich and so out of control and so crazy, so that became a very interesting documentary yeah you know, all the I, I, radio is nice because I can do more quirky things. This is nice because it's more quirky. I like this yeah. I, I'm not saying I should be on every week, but I like. It. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, you've piqued my interest with a nine and a half million stamp. I'm sitting here and I'm like, nine and a half million? That's like a Dimitar Berbatov, do you know what I mean? That's like, I'm trying to, to equate exactly. it to a footballer or something, and I just can't yeah, wrap my head around why.
2: Actually, at least you can post a letter with it. So, you know, it, well,
0: well, yeah.
2: but, it but it's, I think it's, there's an element to it also of, you know, when, when a, a stamp can be easily hidden, you know, a stamp can be something that's very small that has value, when people are refugees, when people, so, so uh, you know, uh, Jews, for example, who were having to run from one country to another, often had collections of stamps because they could be hidden, they could move them quickly. There are all sorts of, you know, there, there, there are all sorts of little quirks about um, the, the, um, the, in fact, the, the last owner, or what, the third, second last owner of the, this particular stamp was DuPont. The, the wrestling guy. Did you ever see that film Foxcatcher? Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah um, fascinating film. the guy
2: who owned it. That, you saw from that film how crazy he was. Mm. So he, he's the sort of person... He, he owned that stamp. His two big things in life were wrestling and stamp collecting. So... Well... You know,
0: what was it he wanted, to be called, he wanted people to call him the, the Golden Eagle or something, wasn't he? He had some <laughs> mad thing where when he was being introduced...
2: I, I get that, you know, I and mean, if you want to call me, if you want to dub that over the interview, call me something <laughs> that
0: Just a the Golden Eagle Levine.
2: Yeah, just just make sure you're consistent. Put it everywhere.
0: <laughs> we'll come up with something better than the Golden Eagle, I think. Yeah, du, yeah, DuPont sure. probably tainted that with his, you know, madness.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. But anyway, so I think another thing, about what I was saying before about history is everything that ever happened, There are so many interesting, odd, quirky stories. And, you know, nowadays, now that we're sort of looking beyond, you know, uh, the ordinary stories uh, and and things that are really odd, you know, we're we're, we're discovering things that we never discovered before. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited by it. There's all sorts of people that we know about now. You know we 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 hear so much more about women for example and and minorities and this is great because it means we're, we're discovering stories that we wouldn't have discovered otherwise so i i just think you know there's so much out there and there's so much to learn and and um yeah i find it very exciting
0: yeah i think i'd agree there i think that the, the more that comes out i love like like we're saying those are the kind of quirky stories like the. there's I'm not saying it's the same as a nine and a half million stamp, but it's one of those kind of <laughs> stories in Irish history where, um, and you you might be aware of it, but it's uh, the, the Russian crown jewels and how oh, they they were in Ireland for years undetected, live it, staying in someone's attic basically.
2: I had no idea what, what, how.
0: So, uh, Harry Boland, who was a big player in kind of the Irish uh independence right. sort of crack, and he, he was he was great friends with Michael Collins, the, the, the famous mm-hmm. Michael Collins. And um, I think it was, was it in the build-up to the to 1916 rebellion or after the 1916 rebellion, um, basically money was exchanged with, with the Russians while they were in the middle of their kind of... Uh, what was the Russian thing Yeah, Was it the, the, the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. So in exchange or as a guarantee for money that was given to them, the Russian crown jewels after the Romanoffs had been disposed of were given as collateral. And Harry Boland was the one who was given them. Um, and he brought them home to his mom and said, <laughs> you hang on to them. And because Ireland was going into a civil war at this point, And he was like, if anything happens to me, you are only to give them to Eamon de Valera when everything settles down. So Harry Boland she gets put, killed. She put
1: them in the attic, didn't she? She put, she
0: put them in the attic in our house. And er, sorry, uh, Harry Boland dies in the Irish War of Independence. And, you know, 20, 30 years goes by. Eamon de Valera eventually gets the Irish Republic established, becomes president of Ireland or whatever. And she marches to government buildings with, with this box. And it's like, I have to give these to Mr. de Valera. And it turns out that are Russian crown
2: jewels. That's just bad. There's a film. There's got to be a film in yeah. that. Isn't there? That's just fun. It's absolutely. I love stories like that. Yeah, yeah, mad, absolutely mad. Like,
0: and I've you know i probably butchered or I've let some detail <laughs> or whatever. But that's the kind of pub version that you'd hear. You know what I mean? <laughs>
2: yeah, that's <laughs> all that matters. The pub, are <laughs> the pub version is always the you know, the most interesting. I, I I came across this guy who was a very senior officer in the Royal Flying Corps in the in the First World War. Mm-hmm. One of the first people to fly out, incredibly brave, incredible, became the senior officer to 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 be killed in action. But just the year before, he had gone to Germany and got the enormous collection of arms and sailed it to, to, to Hoth in Dublin. He'd basically been carrying, I can't, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, I can't, but he'd been carrying the arms um, that to be used in the Easter Rising. And he was, a, he was a serving officer in the Royal Flying Corps. And when you discover these people who you know have these sort of double lives, you know, like the man who won the Victoria, again, I can't remember his name. I, I'd, I I'd done some homework before I'd done, come on it. No, it's won be, it's Victoria, better when
0: there's a bit of vagueness about it, because people go, oh, I need to find out that, and they'll go and Google it, and they'll come back and tell us, and it's great crack altogether.
2: Well, then, then this is great crack, because there's plenty of vagueness here. <laughs> the, 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 um, but he, he, he won the Victoria, a man who won the Victoria Cross, what was his name? He won the Victoria Cross and then joined the IRA. And if you look at the, the two different literatures, only enough, the one doesn't mention the other. It's like, you know, two different men. And when you match them up, and you realise, ah, that was the same man. And yeah. and you know, it's there's plenty of that. I mean, there's plenty. Double agents,
1: Josh. Yeah. There we go.
2: that,
0: That's gone full circle. That has,
2: not it? That's a double God. agent. I didn't even so, spot that. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Sir Roger I mean, Casement was one, was one of them, they, wasn't he? Who was that? Sir Roger Casement. He was. He yeah. was uh, a double oh. agent, wasn't he? And
2: oh my I, God, th- Casement! What a fascinating fascinating man casement was yeah absolutely and 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 you know special war going to the to the to the um prison camps and i mean you know the the, there are like like i say you know so many the big stories are great but they've been done it's so interesting now to you know i'm so i started off actually as an oral historian really i mean first couple of books were oral histories and so i've never quite lost that because you know, the stories of ordinary people are, are, are really what fascinates me. It's, it's, um, it's, you know, if you go into the Imperial War Museum in, in London, they've got this amazing archive of people talking about their experiences. And if you listen to the First World War veterans, you know, the, the ones who are done early on, they don't understand why anyone wants to hear. You know, they don't think they're important. They start telling you about the, about the, the strategy of the battle, and they have to be told, no, no, no I want to hear what you did. And they're amazed. After a while, yeah. the penny drops, and sometime in the eighties, they seem to be happy. They realize that what they did is important, and to me, that's the key. That's what interests me: how we would all behave in a given situation.
0: Definitely, there's a guy over here. Actually, we've had him on the podcast a few times, but he's he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, they are saying about kind of oral histories and that that kind of you know the people element. His name is Donald Fallon, right? And he he's just amazing in terms of he goes off and he, he finds these characters and these people from around Dublin and around Ireland who are, you know, you know the kind of local legends who who kind of, they're these characters that have existed in, in cities and in towns and everybody knows them but knows nothing about them kind of thing. Yeah. Donal has this amazing knack of being able to go off and find out about them and out then intertwine that with kind of the bigger picture of things. C- Come here to me, is that the
1: name here, of his? Yeah, he, he's got two books, um, with, with other historians, um, and uh, t- yeah, two, t- two books called Come Here to Me, and they're just collections of stories, yeah. um, from different characters around Dublin. But he was also involved, and um, Josh, you'd, you'd, I think you'd like the, this concept of a project. Um, RTE, our national broadcaster, did a project last year called National Treasure, yeah. <coughs> where a couple of um, historians from politics, from sport, from fashion—they mm-hmm. all gathered um, in different community centres, and this was all filmed over a course of a couple of weeks. And people were invited uh, to to bring stuff. So, for example, with Harry Boland's mother, with the crown jewels uh, in the attic, they were asked that they were asked to uh, show up with some crazy collective item. And then they turned it into a national treasure, and they talked like Danny said, the local element with and then there was the bigger picture, and this was all a series on on our national broadcaster. It was brilliant
2: a brilliant idea it's a really brilliant idea i mean that's yeah. the you know it's, it, 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 it's how these big events affect people so that's all, all in the end what you know what really interests me um mm-hmm. and it's what I find so moving you know i i, I um i, I I, I know a book's going well if you know if I'm finding myself moved by, by by the stories in it, and you know if I'm getting beyond. Obviously, the big picture has to be told. You have to make sense of it. Yeah, but, you know,
1: but it's 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 joining the dots that you love.
2: Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and and, and yeah. why it's incredibly satisfying. Why better to do this than to be a lawyer? Um, <laughs>
0: yeah. Especially a criminal lawyer of all things, as well, which I can't imagine gave you too many, you know.
2: I, well, I quite I did actually quite enjoy it, and I was I was you know reasonably good at it. But it was you know this 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 is this is a lot better. I mean, it, you know, it was like, in fact, it wasn't that different. You know, you're, again, you're dealing in stories. You know, you were you were telling stories. You were you were hearing people were telling you their own stories, and you were sort of their mouthpiece and 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 passing them across. So it's not in some ways, you know, it it, it it's not that different. In other ways, it's just. So much better.
0: <laughs> so much better. Uh, J- Josh, we we have taken uh, enough of your time for one evening, but we've totally, totally enjoyed it, and um, and and thanks so much for doing that. But before you do head off, we we promised we'd we'd close on a note surrounding cornflakes. Oh um, yeah? So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, actually, a guy who we've uh, again <laughs> and a local character for us, but but we had him on the podcast once, and people loved him. Gary Mackle is his name. He's 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 a character and a half, but he has a theory. That cornflakes taste better as a dessert than they do as breakfast. So, Uh,
2: well, he's he's absolutely right. I mean, (laughs) he's not. I don't. I've never like. I love cereals, but I don't like cornflakes. Cornflakes are just too too plain, too ordinary, too. And this
0: this is where I'm going. Sorry to to uh, across. This is where I'm going. This. So cornflakes as a dessert I think gives them that little bit extra because uh, do you know do you know the story behind cornflakes? No.
2: Oh wait something to do with with the bowels and,
0: and No, that? no. So um John Kellogg, the, the, the Kellogg's man, yeah. uh was like a a devout celibate and oh. he he invented cornflakes to be um, whatever the, the the opposite of an aphrodisiac is, I, can't, I mean Brian's having a, a, a bad moment here. But he, he essentially invented them as a way to discourage people to to go after sexual urges and to stop people masturbating.
2: Well, it certainly it works for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, I can't that's, remember that's... ever indulging straight after cornflakes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that yes, I do remember that story, but. Cornflake. I mean, th- there's. I, I don't know if you've got these in in Ireland. There's a chain of cereal cafes that have opened in London. Have you re- Have you heard about this?
0: I I've uh, really seen yeah. in a I don't think they've. I don't think they've made their way across the water oh, now. But well, I think two Irish guys opened the first one in London.
2: Yeah. They? Well, I, 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 God knows who. I mean, they're they're very trendy. You know, they're they're, they're sort of hipsters. who have opened it. I've seen pictures. Yeah. You know, they. I don't want to say anything in company, but they're. They both have very big beards. And, and they, <laughs> they charge outrageous money for bowls of cereal. And, but it's really – it's a dessert cafe. It's exactly what you're saying. The, the, the sweetest, you know, cereals you can get. And they're not even just with milk, and, you know, with sort of strawberry milk and chocolate milk. and So they are dessert cafes. And it's absolutely true. Well, it it, it gives a kid, you know, kids who love sweet things, it gives them a chance to basically have a dessert for breakfast. That's what a cereal is. Yeah, know
0: I don't know. For me, I'm I'm a I'm a plain milk man to to the core. I'm, that order stuff far too decadent for my liking now.
2: Are you? <laughs> are you low fat milk or full fat? Ah,
0: milk? no, no. I go I go for the full fat milk. It's yeah. the the stuff too watery.
2: I just and also you know it is totally watery and. You know, people, people who don't hold back on anything else for some reason have that stuff, as if it makes any difference at all to their, to their health exactly. or insulin. Anyway, I, lo- I love how we're talking about cereal and
1: milk now. It's brilliant.
2: <laughs> but we said we would. We said this is where <laughs> we'd end. That <laughs> is. That, that's true. I'm happy. To, I mean, my daughter's asleep now. I can go on for another two hours if you want. I mean, <laughs> <laughs>
0: we'll get you back on another time definitely because i have totally enjoyed this and uh, i think there's a million and one things we could easily just aimlessly waffle about for a long time
2: like ah you yeah, know this is great i've got another we've only touched on a couple of my books i've got five we could talk about do,
0: do you know any any excuse <laughs> <laughs> um, if people want to to see or find out about your books or even just follow you in general and that kind of thing yeah. josh where's the best place for them to, to hit you up
2: well i've got a website i'm so awful i'm sorry i, I haven't updated it for a while i'm just you know, terrible at all this kind of thing. And I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and all these things. Um, I hate them, but I'm on them. Um, uh, so yes, you can find me there. And if you want to get a message to me about anything that's, you know, go on, go on my website. You can um, put a message there, I think. Um, and I thought it lovely. I really, really enjoyed this. No, well, yeah, likewise. And
0: and again, thanks so much for your time. And and I think we'll definitely uh, be extending the quality again in the future. So, um, by the way, you have
2: Turtle Bunbury on? Do you know Turtle Bunbury? No. Oh. He's a, isn't that a great name? He's, he's, he's a fantastic historian, Irish historian, um, oh. who, who used to run the Irish History Festival. I, went, I, I spoke there a few, a few years ago. Um, and he does quite a lot of oral history stuff as well. He's a really interesting man. It's just a thought. So you, might, you might want to have him on at some point.
0: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's, that sounds <laughs> yeah, right up our street, yeah. Brilliant. Well, Josh, thanks, man, again, and oh, um, so much We 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 look forward to seeing um what comes next year. Anyway, we'll we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that.
2: Well, thank you for the. It was a big surprise to get the call, but you know, real delight. So, thank you very much.
1: Ah, Merrow, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I enjoyed that chat. I love when we um when the guest does all the
0: talking. Yeah, yeah I love when they they essentially, almost like they're they're holding court. They they just, we we ask one or two bits, and they just give us so many stories and details and, and tidbits and and i love that and he i, I love that like you could tell he was kind of getting excited at times where he'd, he'd be saying something and he'd go and of course then blah 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 blah, blah, blah and he just jumps and it was like josh mate you are love
1: it Absolute i didn't think legend. josh would um would be talking about an opinion uh given by gary mackle about cornflakes but however that's how that's how the stories go that's
0: it, Gary McEl we're, we're trying to bring him to the masses as much as possible N- not actual mass um, it being Easter <laughs> Sunday and, and Gary being banned from the church of course um, <laughs> I mean it was a matter of time before he tried to impersonate Jesus and you know all that crap that, look there's legal battles if you want to talk about that you'll have to talk to Gary's solicitor, Gerald Keane um, but yeah yeah, there you go I, I enjoyed that and I would, I would definitely go for a point of playing with Joshua Levine any time
1: Absolutely, gentlemen. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Josh. Indeed, Merrow, Should yes. people
0: want to indulge their ears
1: with, oh,
0: I don't know, over a hundred and eighty other episodes in an award-winning podcast, where can they
1: go? They can go to any podcast provider, and they can just slit it, slit in, <laughs> slit in. They can just slit in, yeah. <laughs>
2: they can just slid in
1: and go to the podcast provider. And put into the search bar WTS pod, and you will find us anywhere and everywhere you can get a podcast. You can also check out our Twitter at WTS pod um, and our and website WTS. WTSpod.com.
0: When you say anywhere and everywhere, so you're saying if I were to put WTS pod into Stitcher? Yes. If I was to put it into Apple Podcasts? Yes. Graham. If I put WTS Pod into Spotify... Yes. I mean, what about Podcast Republic? Oh, absolutely. So you're telling me it is literally anywhere and everywhere there's a podcast. I type WTS Pod and we'll be there. Dinger. I don't know about you, lads, but this highly elaborate, overly scripted section of the podcast has clearly explained where you can find us... And
1: until next time. Clear noise. Full hearts. Can't lose. Too sweet. Look.